Okay, we've got to pray. Would you pray with me? Lord, it's a remarkable thing, and we praise you for it, for giving us your word, for uh, revealing to us your will, for, for even doing more than that, uh, for revealing to us your person, for showing us your heart, for your people. Uh, Lord, we pray um, that this word would go forth, and as you have promised, uh, that it would not return void, uh, that you would be so kind as to form Christ in us, uh, either for the first time by coming to a new faith, or Lord, that we would grow in the faith, that we would die more and more unto self and live more and more unto Christ by the preaching and the reading of your word, and even as we come to take the sacrament in a moment. Uh, Lord, you're, you're sufficient for these things. We are not. And so we thank you that you have given us such promises and, and that you have proven them all true and said, yea and amen in Jesus. So we commend all of this to you, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, a number of years ago, my wife and I went to a Bruce Springsteen concert. Um, yeah. Got some Bruce heads in the room. Um, and, you know, Bruce is, is one of two people who successfully turned me into a seventh grade girl for about, you know, three hours um, on a, uh, you know, at night. Um, the other one was Michael Jackson. And, and, you know, I've been to a lot of concerts over the years, but, but, but that particular concert made, made a deep impression, uh, one that I really pondered uh, for weeks. And, and, of course, you know, Bruce is famous for great shows, but what struck me was not only that Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band had managed um, you know, to write great songs and perform them well and high energy and get in the, the crowd into it and all that, but that they had managed to stay together for 40 years. You know, and, and in that concert, it was palpable, uh, their, their love for one another. Uh, you, could, you could see it in the way they interacted with each other, the way they looked at each other, the way they played together, the way in which Bruce, you know, uh, who's kind of the consummate front man, throughout that concert determined to honor, you know, his band. And I just watched that, you know, because I've seen um, behind the music, and I know what happens to rock bands, and you, you look at that and you go, how is that possible? Um, I've been on a lot of, you know, little business trips over the years where I've, you know, shacked up with a coworker for a couple of nights at a Hampton Inn, and by the end of it, I don't want to see that person for six months. So, you know, this had me curious. I started digging around for interviews with Springsteen and came across one where the interviewer asked, how is it possible that after all those years, You've, you've not only kept it going, you not only still write great songs and you put on great concerts, but it seems that you do it with joy with the same people who you've done it with since you were 17 years old. How is that possible? And Springsteen was asked that question, he pondered it for a second, and he gave a one-word answer. And that answer was desperation. Desperation. A desperate need of one another. A, a sense of desperation in needing to be in it together. A sense of desperation in continuing to search out together all the beauty and the power of what 
was happening among them and being created by them together. Now, our passage this morning begins with a prayer, and, and I take the prayer in verse 13 to be something like the hinge upon which Romans 15 swings. It's a prayer that the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. The prayer is one in which the power of the Holy Spirit is invoked to give the church to, the, to do, to have the ability, to have the capacity to do what we might think comes very easily to us, and that is to believe the gospel. And I think that prayer is so forceful, and the power of the Holy Spirit is called upon because the gospel is so easily and readily forgotten, so easily set aside, often in the interests of other things that are, that are good, you know, but not, not the life of the church. It's a prayer of desperation that sits at the center of this passage in, in the way a mast sits at the center of a ship. And I think Paul is, prays it there to say, lash yourself to that prayer because we are in for some choppy waters. We are in for choppy waters as, as a church and keeping the gospel at the center of our lives. And we're also in for choppy waters and carrying that same gospel to others who have yet to believe. Lash yourself to that prayer. Pray that God would give the power of the Holy Spirit that we might believe. Now, I didn't do a number crunch on this, I, I, you know, I, I, but I imagine one of the most popular bumper stickers out there is the one that says, coexist. Has everybody seen this one? Okay. Yeah, I see it everywhere I've ever been, and yeah, it's the one where coexist is spelled out with all the religious symbols, um, and, and I think the intent of that was to encourage people to live peaceably among each other in, with all of our differences, you know, that there's a sort of a community spirit impulse there, but, but I got to tell you, I've never liked it, um, and the reason I've never liked it is it sets such a low bar um, for human relationships, it was out there, I mean, it's a bumper sticker, it's a little bit, it's presented like a little bit of a call to arms, and yet the reality is we're all doing it. You're existing, and I'm existing, we're all existing, so we're coexisting. Um, we're doing it right now, but here's the thing that I think that the bumper sticker actually gets right, and, and that is that on our own, um, by our own energies and our own best intentions, I think coexistence is about as good as it gets. That's pretty good. Just, just on a human level. If we're lucky, we can pull off some decent coexistence. And, and I, I get into that to help us appreciate how Paul looks to the gospel of Jesus Christ to give us so much more than coexistence. So much more than a maintenance level. We're getting along, we're not fighting, and that's good enough. But instead, he calls on the Lord to provide something so much better and so much richer than we could ever hope to create for ourselves, uniting us to him with the result being, as he prays, joy and peace and abounding hope, calling on the Lord to do that work sovereignly by his good and gracious will. 
This is why he can say, I'm satisfied with you. I can attest that you're filled with goodness, that you're filled with knowledge, that you're able to instruct each other, not because they themselves have the goodness and the knowledge and the ability to instruct, but because of what he just prayed, that, it, that the Lord is the one who alone is able to fill you and has done it. And I see it. I see the gospel at work in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, Paul absolutely loves and leans into, at every opportunity, the sovereignty of God. That is a sweet reality of Scripture and of our sovereign God, that He sovereignly sustains His people in the faith and He sovereignly saves people. Now, I struggled with this idea of God's sovereignty for a long time because I'm American. I've got Netflix. You know, I want to sit down with my remote control and I want to choose things. You know, incidentally, that's the source of a lot of conflict in our home, probably yours too. But, but you know, but I like to, I like to know that I've, I, I got a choice in this deal. Like, if, so, you know, when it comes to the sovereignty of God, especially when it comes to sharing the faith, if I really believe that, where's the motivation to share the gospel if God's doing it all? You know, what's up with the idea that, that I don't choose, but God does the choosing, that he does the work? God does it all what's left for me to do. Well, Paul knows some true things about us and about God. First is he knows something about our human nature, which is to say that our hearts and our consciences and our wills need so much more than wordsmithing, convincing arguments, and logical proofs that, would somehow, that we would somehow imagine would enable us to make the right choice. We would choose the Jesus show and not the other shows. You know, it turns out that what our hearts need before anything else is to be brought from death to life. Right? And who here is able to do that? Well, only the Lord is up to the task. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It is of the Lord. But another truth we forget is that God loves to use his people in the process. He loves it. He loves to use his people in the process of calling other people to himself. He delights in joining word with his witnesses, with those who are able to say, I have tasted the Lord and it is good. He loves to join the spirit with his saints. He loves for those things to work together. So Paul, you know, this is why Paul doesn't talk about his own ministry in terms of skills or techniques or his education, all of that which you know, all of which are considerable. Instead, he just wants to say, I want to tell you about the grace of God that's been given to me. He ministers out of that. It's God's grace that is equipped him, he says, to proclaim the gospel of God to the Gentiles. Now, I want to, I want to much of this passage is dedicated to what it looks like for Paul and, and by extension for us and his church to share the gospel with those who have not heard it yet. And, and to get into that, I want to kind of frame it with a little bit of a nerdy, you know, classic theological formulation, uh, which has to do with the ministry of Jesus to his people. Uh, the, the, the classic Reformed understanding of how Jesus ministers to his people is that he does it uh, through the, his threefold office, okay? Which is to say that Jesus ministers to his church as prophet, as priest, and as king. Jesus ministers to his people as the perfect prophet. He reveals God's will to us for our salvation through his word. He's the perfect priest and offering himself 
as our perfect substitutionary sacrifice and, and, and interceding for us continually. He's the perfect king in subduing us to himself and ruling us and defending us and restraining and conquering all our enemies. And, and you know, in some capacity, any faithful pastor or missionary uh, reflects those offices. Any faithful minister strives to, to be faithfully prophetic in proclaiming the truth of God's word. Um, any faithful pastor seeks to be faithfully priestly in praying for their people and interceding for their people and bearing their burdens. Any faithful pastor strives to be faithfully kingly in administering the church well and calling people to submit to God's will and defending their people from spiritual harm. All of those offices are reflected, but I want to notice this. When Paul talks about sharing the gospel with those who don't believe, he does not say, I've been called to be a minister of Christ in the kingly service of the gospel of God. Neither does he say, I've been called to be a minister of Christ in the prophetic service of the gospel of God. What he says when it comes to sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those who don't believe is he says, I've been called to be a minister of Christ in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Priestly. His calling to the Gentiles, he understands, first and foremost, as being a priestly service, so that the offering of the Gentiles, he says, may be acceptable, may be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's been a little while, but Paul is still kind of teasing out what he said in chapter 12, verse 1, where he appealed to the church by the mercies of God that they would present their bodies as what? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So when Paul says, I'm engaged in the priestly service of the gospel of God, working to the end that the offering of the Gentiles would be acceptable, he is simply talking about sharing the gospel with those who don't believe so that they would come into a living, worshipful relationship with the living God. That's what it means when he says that he wants his priestly service to result in the offering of the Gentiles to be acceptable. When he talks about an acceptable offering, he's using kind of temple language there. He's implying really two things that would have made for acceptable worship for anyone going to, to the temple in Israel. On the one hand, the worshiper was required to make an acceptable sacrifice for their sin, a, a, a sacrifice that would expiate sin. That is to say, it would take it away. It would remove us from. It would remove from us what we can't remove from ourselves. That God would do that. And on the other, they were required to make an acceptable thanksgiving offering or a burnt offering, which was given to express gratitude to God, giving us a righteousness we could never procure for ourselves. So, you know, there's this idea of the expiation of sin and the expression of thanks. Is kind of the one-two punch of the worshiper. And the priest's role in this was vital because he was the one who stood in the gap for the worshiper. He was, the, he was there to offer these sacrifices on behalf of both individuals and the people as a whole to ensure that it was acceptable before a holy God. The priest was there, in other words, to create a life-giving connection between a holy God and a sinful people to do the work of making the worshiper acceptable, to go before God for them, to intercede for them, that, that, that they would be pleasing in his sight. And, you know, priestliness is more than a position. It, it is actually a posture. An example of a priestly posture is in Genesis 18 in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Famous story, of course, 
We, we to this day, uh, those are bywords for, uh, you know, a wicked place, a place where evil is run amok. And we first learn about that when the Lord says, you know, I've heard a great cry go up from Sodom and Gomorrah. Not unlike the great cry that went up from Egypt from the Israelites who were being crushed and oppressed, right? Enslaved, done wrong. So when the Lord tells Abraham, you know, I'm going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah, it's not because he's uptight. It's not because he's grumpy. It's because he's just. It's because, you know, in the same way that if you and I were walking down the street and heard someone crying out for help, we would intervene and do something about it. Hopefully to the end that justice would be brought. So God lets Abraham know this. And look, Abraham is under no illusions about those cities. He knows how bad they are. And yet, it's a striking thing that when God lets him in on this information, he doesn't say, finally, yes, Lord. I can't wait for you to smoke those godless pagans. You know, they've deserved it. You know, burn, baby, burn. He does something very surprising. He intercedes for them. He pleads with God to spare them. Strikingly, not saying, look, Lord, they deserve it. They're not all that bad. He never says that. He instead appeals to the greatness of God's mercy. He wants to see that go to work. He kind of wants to explore the limits of that because he knows that God is both fully merciful and fully just. He knows that the sin of some can bring judgment on, a high, on, on an entire city, but he's thinking kind of like a good lawyer, you know, if that's true, then maybe it could work the other way. Maybe the righteousness of a few could save a bunch of sinners. And so he starts to kind of, you know, push the boundaries of God's sovereignty, of his mercy, of his greatness. He longs to see it go far beyond it's ever, what it's ever gone. So he starts to say, Lord, you know, what if there's a few righteous people in that city? Maybe 50? Maybe 45, 40, 20, 10. Lord, would you please, would you please have mercy on them? Because of who you are. Their, their sin goes deep, but your grace goes deeper still. What's Abraham doing there? Abraham's being priestly. He's being priestly. He's a bridge. He's not on God's side against the people, nor is he on the people's side against God. He's on the side of both that God would get glory and that the people would come to know grace. That is the posture Paul takes in sharing the gospel. He's priestly. And please, I hope we can see this because church communities so easily, so readily get this so wrong. And I'm just going to speak for my own little tribe of the Presbyterian Church in America, which I want to say I dearly love and I'm deeply grateful for. I'd say we're pretty solid as a prophetic denomination. There's a primacy on preaching and teaching the inerrant word of God, and that is central, and amen. You know, and we're a pretty solid kingly denomination. We're pretty good at knowing we're a kingdom people. We, you know, we're, we're willing to bear some cultural costs for that. We're pretty good at calling people to submit themselves to the Lord. But I'm not so sure we're a great priestly denomination. I, I'm, not, I, I'm not so sure that we're all that great at going before the Lord, pleading with Him with deep sympathy for a people who not only don't know Him, but want nothing to do with Him and are spending every waking hour working against His purposes. That they would be made acceptable in His sight by grace. 
we can be very quick to despise and deride the culture, to quick to pull up the drawbridge, quick to hate the mission field. It's the mission field. Why are you mad at it? Without giving much of a thought to interceding for our unbelieving neighbors, to suffering for them, to praying and longing for them to be saved, to explore the boundaries of God's grace, to push that. It's with that priestly posture. Well, you know, Paul says, not only I've got a priestly posture, I've got a priestly project. This is how I do my work. He says in verse 18, I won't venture to speak of anything except Christ, except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, when he says he wants to bring the Gentiles to obedience, that doesn't sound very priestly, admittedly. Um, I know it's been a while, but Paul actually spends the first three chapters of this letter talking about obedience. And the essence of what he says is, hey, everybody's doing it. You know, except that apart from Christ, no one obeys the truth, but we obey unrighteousness. We're all obeying something. In the same way Dylan said you got to serve somebody, Paul says you got to obey somebody. So Paul's goal is to give the gospel to the Gentiles so that they would be set free from the slavish, brutal obedience to unrighteousness so they would be liberated by Jesus to obey righteousness. But again, you know, still, it sounds a little rough to say, I got, I'm trying to bring people to obedience. I mean, for me, in my life, I don't know about you, but bringing to obedience is the worst part of parenting. It's the worst part of pet ownership. It's the worst part, you know, of being part of a neighborhood association. It's the worst part of work, if you're ever called to do that. Um, it's the worst part of self-discipline. You know, like, you've got to exercise. You've got to bring yourself into obedience and all that. But when Paul talks about bringing them to obedience, he is not talking about beating them up. He's talking about believing the gospel so that they would come into what he calls in chapter 1, the obedience that comes from faith. That is obedience of an entirely different order. It is not obedience as we construe it in every other way so that we obey and we get something like we it's not an obedience that gets you God's grace it's an obedience that grows from God's grace that you've already gotten the obedience of faith is a response to the grace that has been given in Jesus it's not a reward for your obedience it's the result of Jesus's obedience for you it's what Paul calls the righteousness that comes by faith and, and the obedience that comes from faith changes everything. It has certainly changed Paul and his understanding of what he does and his understanding of himself. They say, you know, the, the, among the most uttered words in the English language are the personal pronouns. You know, the holy trinity of me, myself, and I. And you know, people like to talk about themselves. We like to talk about what we do. We like to talk about what we've accomplished, what we're planning. And if you don't believe me, just... Next conversation you get into, try to not talk about yourself. And if you want to even raise the bar, try to introduce yourself to someone without talking about all your accomplishments and your glorious history, okay? It's really hard, really, really hard. And you'd be hard-pressed to find someone who had more to say about himself than the Apostle Paul as an accomplished person, a pedigreed person, someone who could glory and a lot of stuff coming from the right people and having an amazing education 
and being prestigious in his community and gifted and successful. All of that makes verse 18 so striking when he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except Christ, except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. And, and I get that there's a whole lot about Paul to which we cannot relate, nor, nor should we. Paul was supremely gifted in evangelism. Not all of us have that gift. Paul was an apostle, and none of us will ever be that. But, but even though his may not be our particular gifting or our particular calling, what every Christian must have in common with Paul is the priority to share the good news of Jesus. That that would be a priority. After, after all, you know, when Jesus descended into heaven, he didn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations if you happen to have the gift of evangelism. And Peter didn't write the church and say, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you if you happen to have a heart for your non-believing friends. Whatever your particular calling, if you are a Christian, you are called to participate in the sharing of the gospel. Now, lately there's been a debate among Christians about whether Christians should ditch the term evangelical. I get it. I truly do. It is a term that unfortunately has been co-opted, has been politically charged by all kinds of people along the entire political spectrum of American, you know, the American damnable culture wars. Um, and there's a whole lot to say about that. And you know, I'd be happy for you to take me out to lunch and we could talk about it. I've, I, you know, I probably should, but I have no dietary restrictions. And so, but, you know, I, I think about that a little bit like the time someone asked me if I was one of those born again Christians. And my response to that was like, yeah, I mean, that's what a Christian is. Christians born again. In the same way, to be an evangelical in the purest sense is simply to be a Christian. It is to be one who has received the good news of grace from Jesus. It is to be one who relies upon that good news and relishes it in their life so deeply that you have to relate it to others in some way. When you get good news or when I get good news, you delightfully when you delightfully find yourself on the receiving end of a good thing, what happens? You share it. You, you, you have to. I get an unexpected 10% discount at Subway, and I'm talking about that for a week. So, so you know, something doesn't add up. If, if you're someone who, if you're a Christian, which means you've been transferred from death to life, cleansed of your sins, given a righteousness by faith, adopted into God's family, know the living God not as distant and demanding, but as your father, and you've been assured of eternal life, but, you know, I'm not going to share that with anyone. If that's the case, I think it is fair to ask if you really understand the greatness of God's grace. I think it's fair to ask if we're really experiencing God's grace. You know, it's fair to ask, has it become a ho-hum thing? Or, you know, it's even fair to ask, have you ever experienced it to begin with? And, of course, sharing the faith is going to look different for everyone. 
But I think the critical question is, is it happening at all? Is it happening at all? One writer put it this way, evangelism may not be everything in our lives and ministries as it was to Paul, but perhaps it should be far more than it is. And, and look, Lord knows there's a lot of bad ways to share the gospel. You may have been on the receiving end of that. You may have hid behind your couch when the local you know, evangelism team shows up in your neighborhood and they're ringing doorbells. And, you know, or if you've been on the receiving end of the bait and switch you know, gospel presentation and all of that, you know what I'm talking about. But Paul says nothing about strategies. He's, he really, or very little, very little about strategies, very little about tactics. He, he sums it all up in verse 18 where he talks about how he shares the gospel, and he simply says, I share the gospel by word and deed. The gospel, in other words, isn't something he just talks about. The gospel is the way he lives his life. In verse 19, he describes some of those deeds as being manifest by signs and wonders, but it's important not to limit Paul's sort of deed evangelism to only that, mainly because Paul doesn't do that. He tells the Thessalonians that you know how we lived among you for your sake. We loved you so much that we delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. You are witnesses, and so, of, so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Sharing the gospel, but living the gospel. In John 13, Jesus says the most significant evangelistic deed anyone can do is that we would love one another in this community as Christ loved us. I mean, there's something to explore. And notice Paul doesn't say that he shared the gospel by word or deed. He says he did it by word and deed. That old maxim that's been worn out in sermons I've heard it dozens of times, that, that idea of, you know, always share the gospel and if necessary, use words, um, doesn't really hold up because words are necessary. Words and deeds go together. That means Christian witness is incomplete if you, you know, do what is so common in, in my tradition where we think we're getting it all done when we do nothing more than the verbal communication of correct theological and biblical information. You know, we're done. And, by the way, it's incomplete if it's nothing more than simply the doing of good deeds. Christian witness, Paul says, is word and deed witness. It comes not only by way of sermons, but by sitting with one another, by sharing life in such a way that, as Tim Keller puts it, people are given the opportunity to look into us deeply and see what a human life rearranged by the gospel looks like. Are we denying people that opportunity? Evangelism is, is holistic in that way, but it doesn't mean it's, it's never strategic. Paul describes some strategy here. He says it was his ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ had already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. He wants to go to places where no one's ever heard the gospel. He tells the Romans, you know, that's why I haven't come to see you. I mean, I've been busy telling people who've never heard about Jesus, and you guys have heard about Jesus. That's why I've been hindered from coming to you for so long. So when he says, you know, there was no longer any room for work in these regions because he had fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, it doesn't mean that the entire southeastern Mediterranean region from Jerusalem to Albania had been converted. It simply means that Paul was satisfied that he had planted healthy regional churches that were doing word and deed ministry. 
that we're sharing the gospel so that it would get out to the towns and the villages and everywhere. Paul planted churches with the assumption that what it means to be a church is to plant more churches. The church, in fact, was central to his vision for sharing the gospel, and that's why he really ends this chapter by saying, we're really all in this together. When he asks him to give, he doesn't sort of speak about that as some formulaic obligation, but as something that they're just part of as, as givers and receivers within the larger church. He assumes that their hearts have been recalibrated by the gospel so that they'll see themselves as debtors to mercy, that they'll be pleased to give, joyful, seeing their giving as something even owed to others because they've received infinitely more in grace than they could ever give out in dollars. He also reminds them that we're in it together in prayer. He appeals to them, he says, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayer to God on my behalf. The word in our translation is strive. I, I think it's better rendered struggle. Um, there's something of a fight in this. Fight with me in prayer. Struggle with me in this. I mean, Paul is not whining here, but he's given a lot of stuff going on in his life. He said, I've got enemies who are trying to not only do me in, but do all my work in. I've got to get to Jerusalem. Then I've got to get back to Rome. And then I'm hoping to go to Spain. His ministry is too much for him. And you know what? It's too much for us. It always is. And I want to say, you know, God have mercy on the church that doesn't know at least that. God have mercy on the church that looks to incredible facilities, great human resources, financial assets, and all the rest, and thinks, we're good to go. When, when, when you begin to think that, there's always underneath that a sense of mission that is too small, an understanding of the gospel that is anemic, and a confidence in ourselves that is overblown. All of this is too much, but it's never too much for the Lord. Many of you know that, that we spent uh, the better part of the last decade planting a church, and uh, that was an endeavor that was difficult, but we were fortunate to get, a lot, to get good assessment, good training, good resources, equipping, some wonderful servant-hearted people who, you know, all the stuff that goes into the planting of a church. But I want, you, I want to let you know a little secret about church planting. There are proven techniques that you can employ that will get a little church together. You get yourself a half good looking and half charismatic leader, a couple of donors who are generous, a good band, a solid graphic designer, some good coffee, and you will put butts in seats. Strategy and tactics have their place. All that stuff has its place, but it is utterly worthless in sustaining us or in saving others. But what might happen if we believe the gospel? What might happen if we struggled together in prayer, if we despaired of our own competence in any notion that we are ever sufficient for the task and depend on the Lord in priestly service, as Paul puts it here, because of the grace that's already been given? by God.
Abraham went before God for the city. And it's striking that he walked away when the Lord said that he would spare the city if there were just 10 righteous. He felt like, I can't keep pushing. What he would come to find out, because Jesus says that Abraham saw his glory in his day, that had he persisted, he would have come to know that all it takes is one. One righteous. One righteous man to make the perfect, eternally acceptable sacrifice on behalf of a sinful world. One righteous man to make the acceptable sacrifice of praise to the living God on behalf of an ungrateful people who spend every waking hour scheming against the kingdom. That those people would come to bow the knee and delight and be freed from the slavish obedience to their sin that they might find an obedience that comes by faith, where Jesus liberates them. It took the righteousness of Jesus, our Savior, our perfect King, our perfect prophet, our great priest. May we come to know his grace. May we grow in it, that we would grow in grace and become a priestly people who love Santa Fe and the world being a little desperate, willing to fight together in prayer, bearing witness to what Jesus Christ himself alone can accomplish in bringing people to the obedience of faith by word and deed, by the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there's such freedom in saying, who are we kidding? We are not sufficient for the task. We can't even pray a prayer that is satisfactory apart from the priestly intercession of Jesus. And so, Lord, would you grow us in a greater sense of dependence so that we a, great, a greater sense of despairing of ourselves that we might depend on you, that we would know that we need you every hour, every minute. Lord, would you show us, would you, would you, would you help us repent of, you know, I'm just going to speak for myself, but maybe some agree with me, of our arrogance in thinking that we can advance the kingdom one inch we follow our triumphant king, our great prophet, our great priest. Would we do so delightfully, trusting in you, watching you do things that we could never hope to accomplish lest you are in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.